Well, good morning, everybody. This is the most nerve-wracking preach I've ever had to do. Because it's in front of you. Um, When I go to other churches, they don't know who I am. But you are getting to know me. Please be patient. Um, We're going to read scripture from John chapter 12. And I'm going to ask you to do something I don't think you've ever done in here before. Not with when I've been here, which is to stand and we're going to say the words together. Goodness gracious, you'll never have me back. Well, we can try, can't we? The next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. They shouted, Praise God! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, Don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand at that time, that this was a fulfilment of prophecy. But after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realised that these things had been written about him. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him because they had heard about this miraculous sign. Then the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. Amen. Please sit down. Thank you for doing that. That's the first bit. Now we're going to look at four entries because Today is about the entry into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, the triumphant entry. And I thought, well, I'm a Baptist, I usually look at three things. But today, because I'm in your church and our church, we're going to look at four. Is that okay? If it's not, it's still going to be okay, because we're going to have a go. So we're looking at the emperor. So that's like a a historical or political way of looking at this entry. We're looking at the Saviour, who is our biblical and spiritual uh, aspect of our sermon today. We're looking at Bill the student, who is our social aspect of today. And we're looking at ourselves, which is our aspect. How do we respond to such a familiar story? Here we go, I hope. Here we go. So according to two New Testament scholars, the triumphal entry was actually an act of impromptu protest. Jesus was not the passive recipient of an impromptu adoration on Palm Sunday. Though worship clearly happened along the way, that wasn't the point. Controversially, Jesus' parade by donkey was an act of political theatre, an anti-imperial demonstration designed to question the obscene pomp and circumstance of Rome. 
in their compelling book with the most massive title called The Last Week, What the Gospels Really Teach About Jesus in Jerusalem. I don't think you could have shortened that, but it was a long title. Two guys, Borg and Crossan, those are the scholars, argue that two processions entered Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. Jesus's was not the only triumphal entry. So, the first of our four entries, the emperor. Every year, the Roman governor of Judea would ride up to Jerusalem from his coastal residence in the west, specifically to be present in the city for Passover. Passover, of course, the Jewish festival that swelled Jerusalem's population from about 50,000 to 200,000 at least celebrating Israel's deliverance from 400 years of slavery in Egypt many centuries before. The Roman governor would arrive in all of his imperial majesty to remind the Jewish pilgrims and Jewish neighbourhood that Rome was in charge. They could commemorate an ancient victory against Egypt, the Exodus story, if they wanted to. But present, real-day resistance, if anyone was daring enough to even consider it, was futile. Rome was watching. Here is Borg and Crossan's description of Pontius Pilate's imperial procession. They write a visual panoply of imperial power, cavalry on horses, foot soldiers, leather armour, helmets, weapons, banners, golden eagles mounted on poles, sun glinting on metal and gold, the sounds of marching feet, the creaking of leather, the clinking of bridles, the beating of drums, the swirling of dust. The eyes of the silent onlookers some curious, some awed, some resentful. According to Roman imperial belief, the emperor was not simply the ruler of Rome or its districts. He was the son of God, small capitals, son of God. So for the empire's Jewish subjects, Pilate's procession was both a potent military threat and the embodiment of a rival theology. It was armed heresy on horseback. In fact, this is a parousia moment. Yes, I've been to college. This is a parousia moment. Let me explain. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 15, it speaks about the second coming of Jesus. All in Christ, whether living or dead, will rise to greet the Lord upon his return. It's Perusia with a capital P. Why am I saying Perusia? Well, this word was commonly used to describe and refer to a magnificent imperial visit to a city whose officials and people would travel outside the city to welcome the dignitary with great celebration. Perusia. Please forget it if you don't need to know it. That was the first entry. Very political. 
the second entry, against the background of Pilate's imperial procession, we frame the triumphant arrival of Jesus. That Jesus planned a counter-procession is clear from St. Mark's account of the event. He had set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew he was going to enter the city on the back of a donkey. He'd already made arrangements for that. And as Pilate clanged and crashed his way into Jerusalem from the west, Jesus entered through the east gate. And dynamically, that's the same direction from which his second coming will be witnessed, through the golden gate. Whoa! I know you're dynamically excited about that, uh, but this is your church, our church. We don't do dynamic, do we, yet? But isn't that fantastic? Pilate can come in from the, from the other side, but Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. We, till he comes, yeah, coming through the east gate, the golden gate. I understand at the moment it's bricked up, literally physically bricked up and nothing like that is ever going to stop Jesus from coming again do you know if I was in an Elim church we'd go hallelujah at this minute wouldn't we I knew we would thank you it's the best bit of the sermon the rest so Jesus comes through the golden gate through the east gate Perhaps in contrast, looking ragtag and out of place, because his was the procession of the ordinary, the scattered, the powerless, the outcast, and the explicitly vulnerable. As these two commentators remark, what we often call the triumphant entry was actually an anti-imperial, anti-triumphal one a deliberate lampoon of the conquering emperor entering a city on horseback through gates opened in abject submission. Jesus rode the most unthreatening, most unmilitary mount imaginable, a female nursing donkey with her little colt trotting along beside her. In fact, Jesus, as we have seen in our quiz was drawing on the rich prophetic symbolism of the Jewish Bible in his choice of mount. For the prophet Zechariah had predicted the ride of a king on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He would be the non-violent king who would command and commend peace to the nations. Jesus, humbly riding into Jerusalem, came in an almost theatrical way to the shouts of joy and acclamation and hope to the waving of palm branches on a carpet of cloaks and leaves on a spiritually significant day and moment in history, exposing an aspect of entry into Jerusalem that we may not have really considered ever before, his vulnerability. He was terrifically vulnerable. When I've preached this in the past, I've included all sorts of ways in which people who were famous, were ambushed and assassinated. I'm not going to do that today. But I'm simply going to say he was vulnerable. It was humility, not superiority. 
At any point along the way, Jesus could have been attacked, arrested, or even simply ignored. As Ben said at the carol service a few months ago, this wasn't the place for a king to be born in. And nor did it seem like a place for the king of glory to usher in his kingdom. And yet the Lord Jesus loved Jerusalem. Luke 13 Verses 31 to 35 contain such amazing pastoral words. Here they come. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus' fate And Jerusalem's fate are inextricably linked. Zion, the city of God, where stood the temple which once enclosed the sacred ark of God and which should have been the place where God's name dwelt and from where God's glory should have been spread outwards into the world. And instead, it had decayed from within, fallen into ungodliness, succumbed to foreign empires and tolerated the rise of a corrupt religious leadership. It was a den of robbers rather than a house of prayer. Jerusalem had ignored and even killed God's previous messengers and now it was about to kill her own Messiah. Not at the hand of Herod, but on the orders of a pagan overlord manoeuvred by religious leaders. Jesus knew it wouldn't be long before foreign, that same foreign empire would annihilate the city, leaving not one stone standing upon another. He longs to gather the people. He longs to enfold and protect them. He longs to be their saviour now. But they didn't want him. Do we want him? Us ordinary folk. Us scattered believers, do we want him? Surely the answer is, certainly, Stu, of course we do. Well, we want him when we're ill. We want him when we're bereaved, when we're redundant, when we've been bullied. We want him when there are social and neighbourhood differences that affect our own selves. We want him when we're skins, sorry, financial hardships. We want him when we're in debt. We want him when we're frightened, whether our fears are real or perceived. We want him when we're feeling abandoned or rejected. We want him when we're experiencing negative reinforcement. We want him when our faith is weak when we're under pressure, when we're suffering physical or mental disability. We certainly want him when we're depressed and anxious. We want him when we're guilty or ashamed, when we have poor relationships and bad connections. We want him when we have no alternative but to use a food bank. We can't make life make ends meet if we don't. We want him when life experience is lacking and causing anguish. We want him when we're lonely and angry and exposed. 
We want him when we're victimised by criticism and cynicism. And on the other side of all those terrible negatives, but real issues, we want him when we're being honest in the face of dishonesty. We want him with genuine friendships rather than superficial ones. We want him when we're giving our testimony. Don't we want him when we're giving our testimony and when we're witnessing out on our front lines to name some of those things? I want to cry, please, Lord Jesus, ride into our lives. Please, Lord Jesus, ride into our lives. In Philippians chapter 2, and I think we're going to be studying Philippians soon, um, it famously tells us that Jesus emptied himself of his outward glory by reducing himself to the form of a lowly servant. He became human. He humbled himself and became vulnerable. Contrast that with James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, who just a day or two before Jesus rides into Jerusalem, asking, ask him if they could sit alongside him in his glory. They want to have the top jobs, to bask in the high positions, and to be better than the rest. Absolutely amazing. I came across this statement by a, an unknown American soldier, which might help us understand some of the word vulnerable. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn to humbly obey. I asked for health that I might do great things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for power that I might have the praise of people. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for God. Our third entry, did you get it? Our third entry, I don't know who this is, by the way. He's Mr. Google, um, uh, but I'm calling him Bill. His name is Bill, okay? He has wild hair. He wears a T-shirt with holes in it, and he has torn jeans. How do people wear jeans with holes in the knees? And he has no shoes. This was literally his wardrobe for four years, his whole entire life in college. He is brilliant. Bill is kind of esoteric and very, very bright. He became a Christian while attending college. Across the street from the university campus is a well-dressed, very conservative church. They want to develop a ministry to the students, but they're not sure how to go about it. So one day, Bill decides to go to that church. He walks in barefooted, wearing torn jeans, a T-shirt and wild hair. The service has already started, so Bill walks down the aisle looking for a seat. But the church is completely packed and he can't find a vacant chair. People are beginning to feel decidedly uncomfortable, but no one says anything. It is church after all. 
Bill gets closer and closer and closer to the pulpit. And when he realizes there are no seats, he squats right, right down there on the carpet. Although that's perfectly acceptable behavior at a college meeting, uh, this had never happened in this church ever before. By now, people are really uptight and the tension in the air is palpable. About this time, the minister notices that right from the back of the church, a deacon is slowly making his way towards Bill. The deacon is in his 80s. He has silver gray hair and a three-piece suit. He's a godly man. He's very elegant. He's very dignified and courtly. He walks with a stick. And as he starts walking to this, towards this young man, everyone is saying to themselves that you can't blame him for what he's going to do. How can you expect a man of his age and his background to understand some college kid in this meeting? It takes a long time for the deacon to reach the boy. The church is utterly silent. All you can hear is the clicking of his walking stick as he walks towards Bill. All eyes are focused on him. You can't even hear anyone breathing. The minister can't even preach his sermon until the deacon does what the deacon has to do. And now they see this elderly man drop his walking stick on the floor. And with great dignity, he lowers himself and sits down next to Bill and worships with him. So he won't be alone. Everyone, including Stuart, chokes up with emotion. And when the minister gains control, he says this. What I am going to preach, you will never remember. But what you have just seen, you will never forget. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, let's be careful how we live, how we enter other people's lives. You've heard it said before, but we may be the only Bible that other people will ever read. We may be the only humility that other people will ever know. We may be the only love that they ever remember. Being vulnerable for Jesus demonstrates the power and the compassion and the enthusiasm of his love. The Northumbria community, a Celtic-type community, and I'm very much a Celtic-type Christian as well as a charismatic, an evangelical, a theologian, and a few other things. Oh, and a carpenter. The Northumbria community is a dispersed network of people, hugely diverse from different backgrounds, streams, and edges of the Christian faith. This is how they define their calling. How they enter into Christian fellowship. This is their entry. They say, we are called to intentional, deliberate vulnerability. We embrace the vulnerability of being teachable, 
expressed in a discipline of prayer, in exposure to scripture, in a willingness to be accountable to others, in ordering our ways and our heart in order to effect change, by making relationships the priority and not reputation, living openly amongst other Uh, amongst unbelievers and other believers in a way that the life of God can be seen uh, in us and challenged and questioned. I like that. I said there were four entries. We've done three. We've done the emperor. We've done Jesus and we've done Bill, the student, with his... Yeah, okay. So now... I don't know if this is the right picture, but I've tried to find a picture of a chapel without windows. I don't know if I've got that or not, but here's the story. And when we get to the end of the story, we're only an hour or two away from the end of the sermon. There was once a man who owned a large estate within which he decided to have his own chapel built. Yes, there were other churches nearby. But he wanted to come out of his own house and simply walk down the garden and into his own chapel to worship God. So he engaged the skills of an architect who began to design a chapel for his client. And during that time, there were a number of meetings with the architect. And at one of these meetings, the man said to the architect, I don't want any windows in my chapel. I want you to build me a chapel, but no windows in it. It will be lit entirely by candles, which will give the inside a holy and mysterious feel to it. And on three sides on the walls must be painted famous and well-known stories from all the Bible, from Genesis to Revolution, uh, Revelation. The whole thing, right round the three walls, please. And on the facing wall, as everybody sits and looks at the wall, I want my portrait to be there because it is my chapel. And when people come in and worship God, I want them to know it's my chapel. The architect did as he was instructed. And in due course, a magnificent windowless chapel was built. And the man began to worship God there, as did his family and friends and visitors. However, over time, the hundreds of candles inside had given off such a volume of black soot that eventually the wonderful paintings portraying Bible stories on the inside walls began to darken with greasy soot and the portrait of the man himself had almost become unrecognisable. So he spoke to the architect on site to find a remedy. The architect explained that a window was required within this building, but the man was reluctant to accept the remedy. Questioning where the window should be created, the architect did a survey of the structure and its surroundings and realised that the maximum effect of light and fresh air would have to come from the facing wall where the owner's portrait was painted. Eventually, the owner of the chapel reluctantly agreed, and builders were hired to put up the scaffolding to enable a window to be installed. The owner watched the proceedings as one of the builders climbed the scaffolding, armed with his club hammer and his chisel. 
bang, bang, bang. Slowly the plaster and brickwork began to split and crack. Bang, bang, bang. Gradually, one of the bricks inside this structure began to move and tiny cracks of light appeared. The first natural light inside this chapel since it had been built. Bang, bang, bang. Can you hear the banging? Can you see the tiny cracks of light? Can you see the bricks beginning to move? Suddenly, the stubborn bricks fell out on the grass outside and immediately light appeared through where the head and face of the portrait were. And subsequently, the window was installed right where the man's portrait had been and light permanently filled the chapel. Dear friends, when you put your trust in Jesus... And ask him to forgive your sins. And you begin to worship and love him. He will gloriously and personally enter your life with the light and the life of God. And with the power and person of the Holy Spirit inside. To enable and maintain your faith and trust in God. I'm sorry if I get emotional. I just... That's one of the many gifts that he gives to you. He takes care of us. He promotes our faith as long as we remain faithful to God. Of course, you have to make your own mind up about becoming a Christian. That's between you and God alone. Will it be easy from then on? Not usually. Will there be mental, physical, emotional, spiritual struggles now and then? Probably. Will some of your own family and friends think you've lost the plot and become religious? That you've become a do-gooder? Whenever I'm accused of that, and I do get accused of that, I I return and say, I'm not a do-gooder, I'm a good doer. And then they don't know what to say then. So will that happen? Yes, it happens. But you'll gain other folk who will become deep, understanding, trustworthy friends from all over the world. Will you be debt-free, be able to sing like the angels, become a missionary, change your job or even find a job, drive the latest car, gold one perhaps, Uh, Be able to afford your utility bills, be model parents or model teenagers, have a successful diet, go on foreign holidays, never catch COVID, lead a fulfilling career, win the lottery, marry your prince and princess and become a wonderful neighbour. I've no idea. But what I do know is that the relationship God Almighty wants to have with you eternally will be life-changing and life-transforming when you make up your mind to let Jesus Christ the Lord, the Lord of our lives, ride triumphantly into them. All the wrongs, all the shames, all the sins and guilts and poor consciences that we have at present will be forgiven eternally. And deep within us, deep within you, 
there will be an unshakable, an unshakable confidence as you put your entire trust in Jesus. In other words, the past, your past life right up till now will be forgiven totally. Hallelujah. The Christian author, Max Licado, wrote, If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. But since our greatest need was forgiveness, God sent a saviour. On Palm Sunday... People had a personal encounter with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Have you had such an encounter? And if you already have had, can you help bring the triumphant Lord Jesus into your own front line of daily influence? I want to pray. Dear Lord, thank you for sending your son Jesus and paving the way for our lives to be set free through Jesus' death on the cross. Thank you for what Palm Sunday stands for, the beginning of Holy Week, the start of the journey towards the power of the cross, the victory of the resurrection, and the rich truth that Jesus truly is the eternal King of Kings. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen.